3: Welcome to Upfront, I'm Chloe Morgan. And I'm Rachel O'Sullivan. Today we are joined by a special guest. It's been a long time since we've had a guest in the pod and what a guest it is. Claire Bloomfield is head of women's football at the European Club Association, the definitive body representing clubs across Europe. Earlier this year, doors opened for women's football clubs to join the ECA and Claire has been at the heart of everything they've done around the game including lobbying for a new Europa League-style competition and a Women's Club World Cup. So, been a little bit busy. Today, we're going to ask Claire about the future of those competitions, the state of women's football across Europe beyond the WSL and the ECA's groundbreaking study into football boots. Small Topics. Yeah, just the tiny things, really. You know, we don't like to... We just like to scratch the surface on our pods. But thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate having you in the booth. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. No, not at all. It's great for me to see you as well, Claire, because now you're based over in Switzerland. Um,
2: For listener's benefit, Claire and I are are good friends and uh, we were friends when you were a journalist. That's right. Way back at the She Believes Cup in 2020 was where we all um, became close and and formed our little group of friends. And uh, I've watched you go from um that to getting this job, packing up your life, moving across to Switzerland and um, taking on this, the challenge of creating this strategy um, all the, the trials and tribulations that you've gone through to get it to where it is today. So um, it's pretty cool to have you in the booth and what a full circle it is.
4: Yeah, cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's it's been a whirlwind of the last three years. I don't can't really believe we're three years in already. And to be honest, I feel like I'm only just getting started. Great. That's good to hear
2: because <laughs> I feel like you've done a lot in that in the short space of time which probably isn't that short like 2020 feels like actually quite a while ago thank God.
3: No, well I mean thank you so much for giving up some of your time So I really appreciate your in and out of board meetings there's been a lot of big discussions but I think first of all I think with the ECA I think sometimes you know even from people who are sort of heavily invested in women's football there is a kind of Feel that we don't really know. We know that you know when big sort of studies come out against the you know, ACL, the football boots and things. But if you'd like, to just give our listeners a bit of a rundown of you know the, the main nuts and bolts of what the ECA are doing in terms of the women's game. Uh, that'd be that'd be great to start us off.
4: I think you really cracked it with with your introduction. We um, we are the voice of the clubs, if you like, with a sole representative body um, of European football clubs, both men's and women's, with an ever increasing membership base um, right around Europe in all fifty five uh, UEFA territories. Um, and we work right across um, various aspects of the game. So from a regulatory perspective, competitions, research, commercial. Um, so we, we really do have a hand in kind of all of these different areas of, of football. Um, and we have MOUs both with UEFA and FIFA, which mean, um, you know, up until 2030 and beyond, across the, certainly with UEFA, that we've just renewed that MOU um, last month. Um, so that sort of cements our relationship and our partnership, our willingness to work together on lots of crucial topics like calendar or competitions, financial distribution, topics like that.
3: God, not a lot then. <laughs> <laughs> even one of
2: those things, calendar, even that, I'm like, oh my God, even that in itself is just such a massive job. I don't know how, you're, how you have to
4: juggle. Do you sleep and eat at all? Um, no, sleep- I can confirm she <laughs> doesn't <but> really. <laughs> sleep is, is quite limited right now, I have to say. Um, yeah, on the road right now, um, most weeks, um, I've spent a few days here in Manchester um, obviously now down to London back to to Switzerland this evening um, and then on the road again next week and the week after that and the week after that so we keep going Lovely <laughs>
2: <laughs> You um, hosted your first ECA Women's Football Summit at the end of June that was here in London right? How did that go with the first one?
4: That was incredible um, it meant such a lot that uh, our chairman Mr Nasser Al-Khalifi was here to uh, give the opening address um Sarah Barriman as well uh, right ahead of the the world cup in fact she she left for uh, new zealand the following day so she really made it um a priority for her to to be there at what really was a landmark event for us and it was just um certainly f- from a very personal level it was a real sort of heartwarming moment and I, and i remember saying in my my opening speech about it was a moment for us all to pause and soak in what we've achieved over the last three years because mm-hmm. It's an incredible privilege to be part of that. Um, but in women's football, we have this on to the next mentality. Mm. You just keep going without really taking a moment to, to stop and, and soak in the, the success and the achievements mm. that we've made. So I'm the first one to say, um, you know, let's let's just keep going. There's so many more things we still need to do. Um, but yeah, the moment to kind of take stock of what we'd achieved was, uh, was really great. So I hope it's not too long before we can do that all over again. And just in terms of you talking talking there
3: about sort of reflecting on the journey that the ECA has taken to, to get where it is, I mean... On a personal level, though, you've also taken a massive journey in terms of, you know, your story and your background and where you've come from. And, you know, we talked a little bit just that just then briefly about, you know, your experiences of being at a board and thinking I'm sat around this table with all these big wigs in, you know, European football. And I am at this bloody table and I'm at wig. this bloody seat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk to us a little bit about, you know, how you came to be in this role, your background and like how it feels to now be at the top table, you know, Doing, doing girl boss things. Like,
4: <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I love football since I was a kid. Um, it is rooted in our family generations of, of my family-supported Middlesbrough Football Club and have such fond memories of going to watch them as a child. Um, and I was hooked from you a know, very early age, and I wanted to be as close to the game as I possibly could. Um, at 12, decided I was going to be a football correspondent um at 12 at 12 okay i i interviewed curtis fleming who was (laughs) celebrating his testimonial season at middlesbrough at the time um for the school newspaper and and that was it i was like this this is my path this is Mm -hmm. what i've got to do um and you know thankfully was able to move to to london and study journalism um and then with a lot of hard graft made it onto national newspapers and, and big um news outlets um predominantly covering men's football because at that time I couldn't make a living covering women's. Yep. So it had to be a nice little side gig. Um, and then as we were sort of approaching the 2019 World Cup, um, I had a great relationship with Sean Custis at The Sun, um, who was a real champion of of uh, of women's football. And he gave me the opportunity to to be their first full-time football correspondent covering the 2019 World Cup in France. And then things really changed quite dramatically from there. Um I already had in my mind that I would like the opportunity to move into football administration and governance at some point. Mm -hmm. I just hadn't envisaged the opportunity was going to come so soon. Um, But when ECA created this position, it was one that was too good to turn down. Um, so I kept it all very quiet going through the process. but um, Can also confirm that. <laughs> but it was, uh, yeah, it, it, it's been a really, really exciting journey. You know, I've been fortunate to work with both Chelsea and West Ham at quite pivotal times in, in their history um, and learned a lot along the way. I think um, certainly the relationships I've built um, right throughout the industry have been crucial in finding a way forward when we're working through challenging topics like we are now. Um, and but, but what have been some of those biggest challenges that you faced, I suppose, in, you know, your time at the ECA? I mean, mm-hmm.
3: the, the, the women's game has gone through so much transition in that period. Mm-hmm. I mean, what has been your kind of, oh, my God, this is stressful as hell. Like, what's the kind of the big, the big ones?
4: I mean, that's a daily occurrence <laughs> <laughs> because I deal with such a broad range of topics every single day. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, there's there's just so many things. Even the work that we've done, um, again, led by the vision of our chairman um, to rewrite the ECS statutes Mm -hmm. so that women's football clubs are formally recognised by the organisation. And that's a historic change. Um, Then also ensuring that we now have two women's clubs voted onto our executive board. Um, That happened um, just earlier this year at our General Assembly in Berlin. they leave a lasting legacy Mm -hmm. at ECA Um, and that's really important Um, but I mean across even you know on a more sort of political level um, ECA weren't so well known on the women's side we had to kind of earn our seat at the table Mm -hmm. and um, be more vocal and visible about club positions and um, and you know that that was quite a challenge because it sort of it, it changed the landscape once ECA um published the women's football strategy and we started to move things forward and we started to be more visible and, and vocal, as I said. Um and it it took a little while for everybody to get used to that. That strategy, the
2: Be a Change Maker strategy, which was launched um two years ago, was the ECA's first ever dedicated women's football strategy with six core aims, all with the intent of achieving full scale gender equality. You can tell I'm reading that because that's quite a a meaty strategy um, and one of those uh, six core aims is to accelerate the professionalisation of club football and um, yeah I think we have a fair idea of what the state of play is like in the WSL um, but what's the bigger picture for Europe on this?
4: The situation is quite different all around Europe um, they're all at different stages of their journey of professionalisation um, even with one within one league the clubs at the, the top and bottom have Um, very different realities and, and, you know, many have cultural challenges to to wrestle with as well. Um, It's an interesting one though, because you can also say what is professionalization? And I think everybody's definition of that is quite different. Um, We're looking at professionalization um, in several different areas and, you know, the the strategy highlights that. Um, But I think one sort of common theme running throughout Europe right now, um, and certainly here in England as well, is, this idea of, you know, what is the future of our league? What is the right path to take from here? Do we want to move away from our federation? Um, Do we want to partner with a men's league? Do we want to be a standalone entity, like is what's happening here in England? Um, And what's great to see is the clubs um, through ECA are also engaging in these conversations, exchanging ideas and knowledge, and I think ECA is great at doing that, connecting the clubs so that they can have this constant exchange of knowledge and experiences um so that they can chart the best path um for professionalization of their league and with that comes so many things like an increase in broadcast revenues and uh, sponsorship value and all of those sorts of things so um yeah this is a sort of common theme running right throughout europe right now is is what do we do with our women's league and how do we raise the bar
3: and um, But I mean, players in the Spanish top flight went on strike over pay. I mean, they obviously wanted a guaranteed minimum wage across the league, which is nothing short of what they deserve. Uh, and that was resolved in mid-September and the Players' Union praised the role of clubs in reaching an agreement. I mean, in your extensive dealings with clubs all over the continent,
4: uh, I mean, how have you noticed sort of attitudes towards women's football changing over sort of, you know, recent years? It's changed dramatically, um, not just within the clubs, but across the industry as a whole. Um I've been really encouraged to see so many high-profile influential figures, um, owners and presidents of of traditionally big men's football clubs, um, engaging in the conversations um, on various women's football matters um, and wholeheartedly wanting to move the game forward. And they might not be the people who necessarily you see on TV talking about women's football or doing interviews in the press, but behind the scenes there are some phenomenal people working tirelessly to bring the kind of changes that we all want to see um you know i can look around our executive board um and pick out a whole handful of allies that i have there who um are really championing what we're doing and um and without them these big changes wouldn't be possible
2: let's talk champions league um, another competition, um, which in 2021, we kind of had the launch of the newer format of the Champions League. And already people are talking about <laughs> re-looking at the Champions League and its format. But um, there was a centralised TV deal, obviously. It does feel like the Champions League has kind of exploded over the last few years. How much have you seen in terms of that growth? And equally, is there a worry that we're still kind of seeing that those powerhouses in European football um, that we see <clears throat> across the men's game? is kind of that sort of imbalance.
4: Yeah, competitive balance is a, is a really tricky one, and there's no easy fix for it. Um, But it also fuels lots of the conversations and work that we're doing now. I mean, it's absolutely no secret that, as you referenced, when we launched our women's football strategy in March 2021, we said at that point uh, we were committed to exploring the Women's Champions League further. How do we enhance that competition so it can continue to be a premium product? Um, and then in addition to that, let's assess whether it is the right time to bring in a second competition for the women. And I don't want to say Europa League because this will be a competition in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will build a, a format and an access list and a model which works for women's football to where we are right now. Um, but we have seen phenomenal growth of the Women's Champions League. And those first round of reforms which take us through to 2025 have been hugely significant. Um, you know, we, we've we moved from a time where it was costing clubs for the privilege to compete in the Champions League. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mind-blowing. Mm. And then you couldn't even watch them. <laughs> as, as a football fan, you couldn't follow your team through the competition. And I think this has been really, really significant. Um, you know, I also have to hand it to UEFA for the work that their sponsorship team have, have done um, and the big partners that they've brought into the journey in, in women's football. Um, and then, you know, we negotiated... Uh, to, for them 10 million euros to come from the men's competition into the Women's Champions League and, and that was um, you know, a big part of the work that ECA did uh, we're now working to increase that cross subsidy so um, further funds will come into the, the Women's European Club competitions um, but I don't think we should be satisfied with the Champions League of where it is right now mm-hmm. uh, we know that there are a lot of dead games um, we know that some big teams meet too early in the competition. Um, so whilst we've made enormous strides, there are still some tweaks that we need to make. And I think um, as stakeholders, we have a duty to be reviewing these things constantly. And I think this is where our MOU with UEFA is is so crucial because we have a really excellent level of dialogue um, on these topics right now. Um, and there's a huge amount of work going on behind the scenes to to try and determine um how we evolve the women's club competition landscape in Europe and what does that
3: kind of review pro- process look like and when is the right time to review to sort of say okay we've had two years of the competition this is the kind of feedback that we're getting because I mean like you said obviously you've got DAZN who have sort of come in as a tv broadcaster and I think they've done a really good job of kind of like promoting it and obviously it was free on YouTube and then I think now they've moved into sort of a, a paid subscription model where some of the games will obviously be, be behind a paywall but you do also sort of see, you know, you know, Arsenal leaving, you know, either PSG or Man United are going to be leaving, even before the sort of, you know, the, the real meaty part of the competition. I mean, what are the kind of are you allowed to sort of say? Like what the kind of, you know, um recommendations or where we could be going to in terms of the future of the Champions League? And you mentioned there the sort of the Europa League. Is that something that is on the horizon or, you know, is banded about at the moment as a consideration?
4: Well, I guess we're at half time in this, uh, this cycle, 21 or 25. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it's been, it, it, it was the right time to, to start analysing the data, if you mm-hmm. like. Um, and we've been looking at this extensively since the early part of this year. Um, UEFA have also been carrying out various analysis and that's not just on a sporting level but but that's on things like the sort of visibility so the, the broadcast element of, of this as well and understanding um, our audience who is our audience of the Women's Champions League that helps to um, drive a lot of the decisions that, that, that we make so um, yeah really extensive work going on both on a sporting and commercial um, perspective right now um, and I would hope at some point Probably towards the end of this year, early next year, we'll we'll you know we'll be in a position to um all being well, start talking more publicly about the work that has been going on and the direction that we're we're heading in. Um, but I think it's just important to know that everybody involved in women's football right now, um, at a European level, is heavily invested in trying to find the right way forward for the Champions League. Um, it's no secret that I personally would love a second competition in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I have it's something I've championed from the very beginning uh, driven by conversations and consultation with our clubs because don't forget there is still this big band of clubs right around europe who can't yet reach the champions league Mm -hmm. it's it's still a little step too far for them um and a second competition would be a great development tool um in order to serve that band of clubs and then in turn you hope would also help the competitive balance of other domestic leagues it it gives clubs something else to pay for it's an in in um it's an incentive to continue to invest um and you know they might not win a European club competition with their men's team, but they could win it with their women's. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I, I think there's um it's a really exciting period of time right now for the, the club competitions. Um so yeah, I just say watch this birth. And who I mean, this is the biggest question I think of of you
3: know, the the moment, I suppose. Who do you, Claire, in your opinion, think is going to win the Champions League?
4: <laughs> aye, aye, aye. You know how many clubs we represent all around Europe? Leader's this is fifth. a really tough one. This is a really tough one. Now, what I will say is um, it has been incredible to watch the the growth of the Champions League. And, you know, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to watch many of the the games live. Um, and, you know, just to see the main stadiums packed with fans for, I mean, uh, maybe I am still a little bit romantic when it comes to you know watching football under the lights, mm-hmm. big European night. I mean, there's just something really special about that. So, yeah, um, I'm I'm really excited for this competition now to as you say, kick off with with some of these big meets that happen even just in the next few days. A
3: very pragmatic response. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was and also Middlesbrough women coming soon to the Champions League. Oh, that's, that's
4: the vibe that I'm getting. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, it isn't so, such a long time ago since um, Middlesbrough announced that they had brought in the women's team into mm-hmm. the football club. Um, and BBC T's reached out to me and said, can you come on the radio and chat about this? You know, we must be super excited about uh, the women's team having the opportunity to play at the Riverside for the first mm-hmm. time and things like that and I did say look it's only a matter of time before the European Knights come back to Riverside <laughs> <you go>. and <laughs> it'll be the women first.
3: The <laughs> <Europa League. Middles laughs> women in the Europa League I'll see it i i see it, come on. I see it.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Speaking of new competitions, last December, Gianni Infantino announced the creation of a Women's Club World Cup. Um, Nothing concrete has actually come out of that aside from it happening, apparently going to be happening every four years. What's your take on this and how much of a headache is, you know, scheduling calendar? That's one of the biggest, aside from ACLs. I feel like one of the biggest topics of conversation in the women's game at the moment.
4: Yeah, the calendar is huge and it is a real challenge um to get it right we need to strike the right balance between club and national team football and the current calendar doesn't serve the game in in the right way um look exploring a women's club world cup is also part of our women's football strategy we made that commitment to to analyze this again from all perspectives both a sporting and commercial um and we're continuing our work on that so a- again we we signed a new MOU with FIFA which means there is a a long standing commitment now to work together on On topics like this so again that work is starting to happen behind the scenes there's still some way to go yet there are big questions to be asked like when is the most appropriate time to play this competition we all want it but where does it fit in the calendar so the calendar is um is a package of things it's the supporting regulatory framework that that um, governs the relationship between clubs and national teams it's where do the competitions um sit what do those competitions look like Even down to, you know, how many windows do we have and how long are they? Mm -hmm. Um, And all of these things are on the table right now. Um, And again, you know, I've been really heartened by the fact that everybody is willing to come to the table and try and find a way forward. It's not going to be easy. um, But what I keep saying is everybody needs to leave the table equally unhappy.
2: (laughs) I feel like we need an Excel mastermind to just sit down with a calendar and all of the 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 potential games and formats and windows and just work out where
4: everything fits. It's like, <laughs> like GIF, isn't it, with us? Is it good room where the numbers are coming yeah. down like that? <laughs> that? That's how I see it. It's like, a real challenge because you remember it's not just Europe either. Um, it's all of the other confederations. And and again, they're at different stages of their professionalization of the game. And um, you know, I think also as a leading force of women's football, we also have a duty to to help support those other nations because um you know, if if all of these nations are stronger, it's better for everybody. Absolutely.
3: And I think on that sort of theme of, I suppose, you know, the, the whole benefit of this and the whole kind of priority, I suppose, is to protect the players, to make sure mm-hmm. that they get the proper rest, to make sure that, you know, they're not inundated. We don't have a look at, you know, overloading ACLs. And I know obviously last year, uh, so this year uh, in the summer, the ECA led a study into women's football boots, gathering data from almost 350 players across Europe. That's a lot of feet. That's yeah. That's a lot of people to speak to. It was one hell of a road trip. I have to say. yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> um, I mean, currently the boots are designed for sort of Caucasian males generally. When you go into sort of JD, you go into the big sports shops. That is what you see. You know, you know. I, I have the same experience when I was sort of you know playing. know, the boots that you would see were advertised by men. They were, you know, in the men's section. Um, It's very, you only see sort of maybe one or two boots now um, in the sort of women's section of, you know, um, the sort of sports brands. Um, And there's a lack of research on the impact this has for women's players. But this has obviously been a big focus for the ECA. I mean, can you talk us through sort of the the, the main findings of this and and why that was such a priority, I suppose, for for the ECA?
4: Yeah, I mean, through our women's football strategy, we made a commitment to exploring um, women's medical and performance topics. Um, So we set up the Women's High Performance Advisory Group, which is a combination of um, practitioners working specifically with their women's team. So there could be a club doctor, a physio, a sports scientist. Um, And we bring this group together to both steer research that we do. Um, inform best practices um, they also offer input on other aspects of the game so when we're talking about things like calendar we say okay let, let's bring in a medical performance expertise as well so that we're making really the best decisions uh, for women's football um, we embarked on uh, a huge piece of research which was funded entirely by ECA um, in partnership with St Mary's University in London and Aspartar and Qatar Um, And we set out to capture these 3D images of players' feet and also uh, an extensive survey with the players as well, which helped us to understand what was influencing their choices when Mm -hmm. it came to football boots. Uh, What did they know about the football boot market? And also trying to learn more about um, how it felt to wear the football boots currently that Mm -hmm. are made available to them. And the numbers were staggering. It was something like 82% of players reported significant levels of discomfort Mm -hmm. in wearing their football boots. And this blows my mind because when the player crosses that white line, there is no more important piece of kit that player has than their mm-hmm. football boots. So, as an industry, we really have a responsibility to address this. Um, and now we're obviously we've completed that first phase of research, um, and we're now starting to engage with um, brands to understand how we work together collectively to find a way forward mm-hmm. because. Um, this really will need a collaborative effort. Um, you know, we, we think we've been able to move the thinking on quite considerably with the analysis that we've done, um, particularly around things like ethnicity. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that now, again, in sort of the coming months as this work continues, we really start to make some significant progress. I mean, it's not something, these boots are not going to be on sale in time for next season, for example, this is a, a long process. But one of the things um, I really emphasised when we kind of launched this strand of work in our women's football strategy was that we will take the time to do high quality research that has the desired impact. Mm -hmm. And for us, that's for every woman and girl to have the opportunity to play in football boots, which are engineered specifically for her needs. And I won't stop until we've done that. And I have the full support of our chairman, our executive board and the whole ECA administration um, so yeah, really, really exciting piece of work. Um, we haven't cracked it yet. still a considerable amount of work to be done, um, but we're we're on a good path.
3: It was just such an incredible, insightful piece of research. I think, obviously, you know, having played at that level, and you're thinking, okay, the boots are uncomfortable, but I don't really know why. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the really small, minute details, like the placement of the studs, the placement of the laces. You know, you've got WSL players who are cutting holes out the back of like their boots to try and give themselves like more width or like the the slimline fit of a of a woman's foot to a to a man's. But or even like the types of material. Like you think, like how many things can possibly differentiate between the men and the women's game? But it was, yeah, it was incredible to kind of read read through that. And I think. Obviously, there has been now so much focus on you know ACLs and you know what was the sort of impact of the research in you know informing our understanding of you know the boots and the factor they play in the sort of endemic I suppose of ACL injuries that we've seen over the last few years.
4: Yeah, I think naturally everybody um, looked for a link between football boots and ACLs on the back of us releasing those first findings, um, but this piece of research didn't look at the correlation with injury. Um, it's likely to be something which uh, we explore in the next round of research. Um, so I'm very, very careful about making a link between Boots and ACL because so far we don't have the data to back that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, again, it's sort of a commitment when we're doing this kind of work is that we want our research to be of the highest quality and something we can all stand behind and, and make um, informed decisions based around. And that means we go through a really tough peer review process. Um, and that process is underway, but it takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we'll do for each uh, phase of the research that we do. So, yeah, the, the, the ACL topic is um, something which is a big part of the conversation of our advisory group. Um, but we don't yet have a, a link between um, football boots and ACL. That's not to say there isn't one. It's just we haven't got the data yet to, to, to give us any real indication.
2: Yeah, I think the difficulty as well with women's football and with the speed of the growth of the game is that we want answers, and we want things done now and and these things take time um so this obviously is the first stage of your research. What's the kind of next stage or the next change that you'd like to make?
4: I'd like for us to explore the injury element uh, in more detail um I'd also like to be looking at outsoles and traction, so does the boot stick or release um We're very fortunate in the fact that we've got two excellent partners. Um, you know, when you think about Aspartar and Qatar and the facilities that they have, um it really allows us to do some excellent work. And the commitment we made was to you know create um groundbreaking studies that became a reference for the women's game globally. So whilst we serve women's clubs in Europe, we want our research to be shared uh, right around the world so that everybody can benefit from them. And it's interesting, actually, because our women's high performance advisory group and the work that it's been doing um, really attracts interest from right around the world. And I, I saw that at the Women's World Cup in Australia this summer where um, people were approaching me and asking me about the work that we're doing. And um, you know, I remember a conversation with um, the lady who heads up the league in Nigeria, for example, who took a real interest um in our boot studying particularly the work around ethnicity so yeah we're um we're really starting to make a name for ourselves in this mm-hmm. space um but as i said i want it to be for all of the right reasons that we we do high quality studies which which make a real difference to to women's football
3: and sort of extending that i suppose just outside of the the sort of the focus on women's boots i mean What is the sort of vision, I suppose, for the next 10 years of women's football? And also, you know, you've got to appreciate that you have, you know, a certain amount of resources. You can't possibly cover anything in the depth that you need to, to make it a sort of valuable piece of research. I mean, but also, I mean, you were talking a little bit before the pod um, about the sort of work that you're doing to kind of help, you know, forward the discussion on, you know, trying to come up with a way that, you know, players are protected from going into international duty um too early. And, you know, so what what I suppose is the next focus and the vision for, if you can even sort of give us an overview of like <laughs> what the next decade looks like for the ECA. I appreciate that's such a difficult
4: topic. Yeah, difficult I mean, um, question. we're coming to a point where we'll start sort of analysing the progress we've made with this strategy and then start trying to map out, be a change maker 2.0, um even bigger and better. Um, I remember actually, uh, Jean-Michel Lose at the time, uh, was the chair of our women's football committee when we launched our strategy. And when I presented it to him for the first time, he said like, well, this is ambitious. Um, and I'm really pleased with the progress that we've made. We've come such a long way. Um, but there are so many areas of work, some of which we've highlighted already today, um, that still need an incredible amount of attention. So we need to look at, um, obviously more topics in and around uh, medical and high performance we, we have a study actually that is uh, phase one is coming to an end now um, on hormonal profiles and the the menstrual cycle um, again working with a world-renowned expert we want to work with the best um, the competitions as we've talked about another big area of work um, you, you know you touched on there also the relationship between clubs and national teams. Um, club and national team football can work together side by side. Um, And they need one another. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I'm really keen to do is make sure that we work more effectively together, that there is a good sharing of information between uh, clubs and national teams, both before, during and after international breaks and major competitions in relation to the sort of uh, physical and mental health of a player. Um, But also that we ensure that um, players have adequate rest, um, both before and after major competitions. Um, as well as having the necessary time to um, effectively prepare for, for for international duty. So, yeah, it, it is, um, there is no easy fix for any of these challenges. And, you know, we've only highlighted a few. There is a, a list as long as my arm of things we would like to do. Uh, you know, we're also looking now at a training reward systems so to compensate the clubs who um, give a player a, uh, an education and a, a good standing in football and, you know, then set them on the path to their uh, to a professional career. Um, so there's lots of regulation and frameworks, if you like, that are commonplace in men's football, which we don't have yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the maternity regulations, which we were, again, part of um, a big group of stakeholders that contributed to, um, the first level was a good step forward. Are we wholly satisfied with them? No, mm-hmm. and I don't think the other uh, major stakeholders in football would say so either. Um, there is still a considerable amount of work to be done. And I think um, what is most important is that we continue to find a way to get around a table and find a way forward. Even if sometimes um, we have a different idea about how we want to get to the end goal. Um, I think, you know, men's football is entrenched in politics. There are some in the women's game. But we're still able to to get around a table and and find a way forward, and that's something we really have to protect as we move forward. Why wow! To end. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, that should take up the next twenty years, surely. <laughs> all of that. I mean, I think if anything, that what we've garnered from this whole conversation is like how safe women's football is in the ECA's hands I mean the kind of things that you're talking about you know research into the menstruation cycle the ACLs the you know player pathways you know looking at sort of you know younger education pathways for you know youngsters coming into the game I mean those to me are the absolute key priorities yeah I think I've always had a small fear that you know as the game sort of professionalises that you know, maybe looking at placements or looking at ways in which you kind of incorporate the girls into getting commercial marketing experience
4: or social media or whatever mm-hmm. it is but
3: yeah I mean we'll have to save that for another pod because it's
2: just <laughs>
4: we we'll can bring can... her back
2: in two years time and you know we can
4: reel through all the other progress you've made <laughs> and I think it's clear I need to hit the transfer window in January right <laughs> <laughs> I need to bring in some more talent
3: <laughs> oh my god I mean well, thank you so much I, I, you know you've just given us a list of all the things that are currently on your workload your to-do <laughs> list Um, so we do really appreciate you giving up your time to, to come and see us and, and especially in person and on the pod because it's been beautifully insightful. So thank Real you pleasure. so much. Thank you. To, um, thank you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, good luck. Basically, with <laughs> that massive list, um, we'll definitely have to get you back into the pod in a couple years' time, just to sort of like, yeah, we'll do a catch up every couple yeah, of years. Sure. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, but no, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. I am at Morgie underscore eighty nine. Rach is at Girls on the Ball, and we are at Upfront underscore Pod. You can also find us on YouTube at Upfront. Pod. See you next week.
1: Up front is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at lifemd.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer.